Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of a Flyover Labs with uh, Dave Cruz from Madison, Wisconsin. And today we are lucky enough to be talking to a Jake Heller. And Jake is the co-founder and CEO of Case Text, which is the platform platform for att- attorneys to do legal research and also contribute their own content. Uh, it, it's a pretty amazing network what K- Case Text and Jake have created in the last three years. So I'm pretty pumped to hear more about Jake's background and how he started and grew Case Text, um, because building a platform like that is never easy. So Jake, uh, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. And uh, so we'll start out with your background and kind of how you got into Case Text, and, and then we'll dive more into Case Text. So uh, do you want me want to start out telling us a little bit about your uh, your past and your background? Yeah, totally. Uh, I have a pretty unique background, which is, on the one hand, I grew up in Silicon Valley and very kind of like stereotypically in the early 90s, my dad started an internet company in our garage, right? So I've been around nice. and, and building building websites since, since literally the early 90s. And I, I remember actually still uh, the first line of code I wrote was when I was nine years old in 1992. So I've been doing, I've been engaged with, with coding and computers for literally as long as I can remember. And around high school, I also got really involved with policy, speech, and debate. Um, so you might imagine as a person who coded a lot and did lots of debate, I was roughly the coolest kid in my high school. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, but those two interests, I think, merged to, 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 you know, who I am today and what led me to start a case Um On the one hand, I was in love with policy and law. When that drew me to go to law school, I ended up going to Stanford for law school, um, I guess six or seven years ago when I graduated. Um, and I, uh, my, my infatuation with coding was also a kind of a really important influence just to, to take me here to start. Um, and so in law school, I did all the very normal lawyer things. You know, I had the wonderful opportunity to work um, in Obama's White House Legal Counsel Office when I was uh, as an intern, um, when I was in law school, and afterwards I clerked for a federal judge in the Court of Appeals. I, you know, worked for Governor Deval Patrick in Massachusetts uh, as part of as a fellowship program, worked at a very big firm in Boston called uh, Ropes and Gray. And when I was in law school, I was with stuff like President Warren, as a super law nerd. Um, but all throughout that entire experience, one of the things that I kept on running into was the technology um, that lawyers were using was so far behind the, the technology that I was so used to in my, my other parts of my life, especially in the amount that it costs and the quality of services delivered. And that's something that always kind of irked me. And I think you know, although I didn't really imagine that, you know, I thought for forever, as soon as I got to law school, I was going to be a lawyer. And that's what I was going to do. But I think part of part of why I left the law to start case tax um, was a recognition that there are very few people who grew up coding and end up being lawyers. And we can do something to elevate the profession and provide something of high value, uh, potentially, um, you know, and, and, and build something that is of, of really you know great value to the people who work in that profession, kind of underserved, I would say, by innovators. So were you, um, in, in your past when you were working on your different jobs, like can you give an example of 
where you're like, oh, this would this could have been really helpful to have, you know, case text was, you know, you know whether you're cl- when you're clerking, maybe not working with Obama, but um, yeah, was there any example like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I mean, maybe it was a little bit of background necessary to answer that question well. Uh, and that background is, you know, first, what currently exists for lawyers um, when they're trying to do their research. Um, when you're trying to research as a lawyer, you have to interface today with these really old uh, proprietary databases that you may have even heard of. One's called LexisNexis yep, yep. and one's called Lexis. And a few things about these technologies. The first thing is that they are extremely expensive. So um, even if you're at some of the world's biggest firms, you really resent having to pay at the time when I was practicing, it could be up to a hundred dollars for a single search, wow. or twenty dollars. <laughs> right? And so, so you can imagine what that does, right? If you're representing a client, um, and you know you're trying, maybe some in some cases you pass those costs on to your client, and they of course hate it. They hate you uh, for doing so much research, and that puts that puts you in a weird dynamic um, with your client, because you want to do as good of a job as you possibly can for them, even if it does cost you a thousand dollars a day for research, and what, you know? And what type of research is that for the, the audience? Uh, so, yeah. so for, for the, for when I was a lawyer, when I was clerking, working for Obama, working with Walt Patrick, working at a big firm, all, all that time, it's always kind of the same, same task, which is you're trying to get to the bottom of what the law actually says on this point. And you'd think maybe, you graduate law school, you know, after three years, you should know that answer already, right? Um, like, what are you learning in law school? The is that what you're learning in law school is how to find that answer, not what the answer is. And the reason for that is the law, as you may know, is based off of precedents going on, on precedents, right? So you have, you know, one, one case might say something like, um, it is not okay to discriminate in this particular field. And then later it will be applied to interracial marriage. And then 50 years later, that same idea or precedent will be expanded to include gay marriage, right? Which we saw last, last year at the Supreme Court. And, and so the, the law evolves over time and it does so in this very incremental way through judges ruling on individual matters, individual cases and coming out with a decision that simultaneously builds on top of previous precedent, but in, in so doing, it does a new precedent saying in this situation that the judge is currently evaluating, these sets of rules um, apply, and that's how it should be going forward. And so trying to answer what should be a very simple question in the abstract, like, did, was my client, did they do something illegal here, or, or is it illegal? You know, is my client liable or is they not liable? You know, can we go after this guy for doing the thing or now, right? The answer is actually quite complicated uh, because of the way that our judicial system works. And now, you know, you have literally 10 million cases that have been produced since the founding of the country. Um, and that, that services like case decks have in our database and finding the right precedent for the fighter situation and deeply, deeply understanding them is a big challenge, right? So the one problem was that these old systems, they're really expensive. The second problem is the reason they're so expensive is they hire these kind of massive, you know, I take armies of editors, um, very high overhead, right? So they these editors are adding kind of annotations and information that are, are legitimately quite useful, like, you know, Hey, FYI, don't rely on this case in court because it's been overturned by, by a subsequent precedent. Or here's a summary of this case so you don't have to read the whole thing. You're just reading a paragraph instead of, instead of 20 pages or 100 pages, right? And, you know, to, to be true, you know, the truth is that for a long time, people always assumed that if you wanted to provide a legal research tool to help lawyers answer these kinds of questions for their clients, 
uh, you know, you need to hire your own group of 10,000 editors, right? So like Bloomberg uh, from the Bloomberg terminals decided they'd also want to get into legal research and started Bloomberg Law. The first thing they did is they bought for a billion dollars a company that was essentially just a bunch of editors who provided the this, this same type of annotation content for Bloomberg. But it's a very, very important part of it. And I approached the situation a little bit differently. What I, what I saw when I was growing up a coder uh, uh, is that open source solutions were often simultaneously cheaper and better at providing information or tools than previous the previous solutions they were put. Right. So in the world of code, um, I don't know what the world would look like today without tools like GitHub and Stack Overflow. Right. Um, and there are, of course, predecessors to each where the community would help answer questions or share code and build something for thousands of people contributing. Sometimes only this one little bit of information or one line of code really changes everything. Um, and makes, it makes me much better than, than, than the off the shelf tool you can, can buy for thousands of dollars from the likes of Microsoft or Oracle. Um, you also saw this in the world of information, generally speaking, right? Um, and Card and Britannica had the thousands of editors just like left on that message. And now they've been replaced by Wikipedia. Um, Teleatlas has been replaced by Waze, you know, uh, Zagat replaced by Yelp, Slammers, et cetera, to a large degree are being replaced by TripAdvisor. And you see this kind of over and over again, where in every field of human knowledge, you can make something that is both simultaneously better, but also cheaper when you rely on crowdsourcing, open sourcing, and, and data science. Um, and so I thought for the longest time as I practiced that of course, there'll be a cheaper, better alternative to Lexus and Westlaw, um, uh, you know, that will come along someday. And truthfully, I didn't think it would be me to start it. <laughs> I thought someday I'm going to take this on. Um, it took a while for me to realize, you know, I'm a coder and I'm passionate about this. And I think it can be done, done here. Um, and I think this should happen. So so short answer is yes. Would I, would I have found case that's useful when I worked? Uh, in any situation where I thought I was building my client too much, uh, I'd rather have an open source, uh, cheaper solution than yes, absolutely. In any circumstance where instead of reading what some anonymous editor at a big corporation like Bloomberg, Westlaw, or LexisNexis has to say about, um, about a case, I'd rather see what a niche expert, like a partner or associate at a big firm or a professor who studied this issue deeply, what, what I'm going to say what they say about a case, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to have them that makes sense, and that that's a good point. That and to maybe have you describe case text. I mean, we've kind of danced around it, but what's kind of a short description for people to um, grab a hold of <laughs> to describe a case totally. text? Yeah. Legal research and publishing platform, where on the one hand researchers can research our database through searches across a database of literally thousands of articles, posts, um, and cases. Um, uh, that, that, you know, are, are kind of comprised both commentary on the law and the law itself. And so you can find answers that way. And uniquely on case text, as you're researching the law, you come across, uh, you come across the insights that are added by, at this point, hundreds of thousands of lawyers, um, professors, and to some degree law students who are contributing their viewpoint on the cases and statutes you're reading. So say you pull up an important case like, Basic Inc. v. Levinson, which is a important uh, Supreme Court case about securities law and, and you know uh, trading and equities. Um, and what you'll see along the side of that case are literally hundreds of opinions that have been added 
by law firms, lawyers, law professors, et cetera, interpreting, discussing this case, subsequent cases. Um, and on the other hand, it's a publishing platform that enables these professors, law firms, et cetera, to publish on our platform. And they do it for what it's worth, not out of the goodness of their hearts. Uh, one of the things you might learn about lawyers pretty quickly through all the jokes is we have no hearts. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but no, no, seriously, it's, it's more because for them, this is actually for the great month. We have 500,000 people who use the site every single month, um, and many of whom are precisely the audience that these law firms and lawyers want to reach. You know, they are potential clients, right? Executives at companies, um, the general counsels at Fortune 500 companies who have very good representation from members who can understand every month. And so the ability to stand out to this group and show that, that you are the expert on patent law, or securities law, or education law, or whatever it is your expertise, you're, you're an expert in, um, gives these publishers the ability to stand out and, and make a name for themselves. And so in a lot of ways, it's like Quora or Stack Overflow or GitHub, where the incentives there, I mean, it's, it's producing this really great public good um, that is both simultaneously, again, free and better than what came before it. Um, but at the same time, you are getting, uh, you know, you're, you're, you have these people who are motivated in some cases by self-interest to establish themselves as, as an expert in the field, you know, to get hired as a freelancer, as an employee, um, to bring in, you know, to bring in people if you're a venture capitalist to, to pitch you, et cetera. Um, and there's kind of a symbiotic relationship between the content producers and the content yeah, that, yeah, that's quite a quite impressive what you have built. And so, what does LexisNexis have that you don't have right now? That's a great question. And, and the truth is, there are a few things. Um, the first and probably and this is getting like really law nerdy, okay. but the first and most important thing um, for for lawyers is they have this place that's called Shepherds. It actually used to be a book um, that was, and all it is is an index of how one case relates to another, right? So Brown v. Board of Education famously overturned Plessy v. Ferguson. Brown v. Board saying separate but equal is not okay. You have to integrate the schools. And the earlier case saying actually separate but equal is totally fine, right? And that's happened, you know, this this relationship between cases has happened tens of millions of times in the law. These, these, the, the law is a very dense network of cases citing other cases, which in turn to other cases. And being able to know whether the case you're reading is overturned or upheld is actually quite important. So they've built this in the kind of traditional old way of hiring, you know, thousands and thousands of people over the course of centuries to put together this information. And they, they bought this book, this book called Shepherds, Integrative Database, for, for literally a billion dollars. Mm. And I how important it is for lawyers um, to get access to this kind of information. We have something a bit different. We do everything a little bit differently. We have actually built a... Uh, you know, because again, part of our principles to, is to provide a system that is simultaneously cheaper but better than than what has come before us. And in order to do so, here we needed to rely very heavily on, on both data science and crowdsourcing. So on the crowdsourcing side of things, we built essentially a game for law students to play, where they're put to, put you know in front of them as a case relationship. In this case, studying this case, and they're asked to read you know the read those cases and tell us how the two relate, essentially. And the more they do and the better they do, they get more points and more status. Um, and uh, there's a leaderboard where schools and, and, and individuals are competing against each other. And it's actually, you know, again, to get really law nerdy, it's actually pretty fun. I, I have a measly 160 points on the system and I'm being creamed by a number of students who have done over 20,000. Oh, my goodness. 
Wow, that, that's and, a pretty brilliant idea. How many how many schools or do you know people from different schools have um, played the game? Yeah, so a hundred different law schools out of the two hundred wow. are represented. Huh. One's playing a semester actually, and uh, I think at this point it's over five thousand different entities okay. are pretty regularly adding contributions to the system. Interesting. Well, um, and I'm uh, sure, sure it doesn't hurt for like job prospects. I mean, like you said, it, uh, what you've created is uh, great for research, but then also great for like people's careers too, to become a visible. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the truth is that if you Google most law students or get their resume, they either, you don't find anything interesting, you find their Facebook <laughs> page, and what that law student would rather not see as an employee. Um, <laughs> or, you see, you know, kind of the same resume that everybody else has. You know, which a pretty good undergrad, pretty good law school, doing okay. You know, but how do you, as an employer, really separate out the least chaff? And the answer is, if somebody's engaged and effective at analyzing the law, reading a lot of law, and and doing it, um, doing it really well, that person stands out. You know, just like a person who's like the number one answer on Stack Overflow, the number one, you know, what we call a project lead site, so the number one lead siter. Um, is is somebody who stands out, um, and I think our students know that, and they appreciate the opportunities of kind of while they're doing it, they're learning a very valuable skills, which is how to read cases and interpret them. Um, they're getting small prizes and recognition, but after when they graduate or, or look for a summer internship, this absolutely does put them in a position that's different than uh, than than what's come before it. And amazingly, we just started this last semester, so last October, I think, is when we launched this project. And at this point, over 450,000 um, individual case relationships have been done. So we're not yet at the tens of millions that we need to be, but it's growing very rapidly. And so we're, we're, we think we're moving in the right direction. Well, um, but that's, you know, until we build out this database using, you know, both students who are entering these relationships individually and data science and machine learning will help take, amplify this, I would say, right? We have an amazing data, data set from which we can do um, some, some, and already are actually getting some machine learning benefits out of it. Um, we can do, I, I think, some really amazing things uh, in terms of, you know, getting to the next from 450,000 to, to 15 million, you know, um, and categorizing a lot of the important case relationships in USD. Huh. That's exciting. And, I mean, by grabbing those people when they're in law school, I mean, of course, that generation is just tuned in. Like, the, the, your platform is perfect for them, right? Like, why would they ever go to Lexus, Lex, Lex, Lexus after they experience a case text? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. That, that truthfully, from a business strategy perspective, you know, it's long been known in this field that the law student population is a super important population. They are the future of the profession. And the truth is that, like, when you're a, a young associate, you're the one doing the bulk of the research for your firm. You know, um, young associates spend 30% of their time doing legal research. So if you really want to win over the hearts and minds, of uh, the people who will eventually be be the ones actually using the tools, we do better when the the law student market. One thing that I, I'm personally proud of is, you know, Lexus and Westfall, they understand this. They really try to, to influence students as well and get them using their platforms. But what's crazy is that, you know, and I talked to a former COO from Lexus Nexus who told me this, they spend on average $10 million a year each of these companies to reach the law students. And we haven't even raised that much. Like we're not even close. <laughs> <laughs> and and we don't only have people using our system, which is kind of like a baseline, just get people on it and start using it. We have law students who are contributing to it, which I think is a much higher burden. And um, so far it's working out quite well. Um, nice. And 
So, all right. Well, I could talk about the platform all day because what you have created is so interesting. But let, let's. Uh, I'm I'm curious how you got this thing going because it's not easy uh, and they attract all those people. So, take us back. What year did you start it? And how did you? How in the world did you start it and recruit people? And um, yeah, how do you find your team? So yeah, if you could take that us. That was back. all my question. Yeah. So the case deck originally started. I mean, it's kind of funny the way these things go. Um, but I was actually perfectly happy at my law firm back in like, April of 2013, um, uh, and I was had fantastic, you know, uh, coworkers, fantastic bosses. Um, really interesting projects. I got to work on a few Supreme Court cases in my practice, and everything was just awesome. Um, but I just, this idea had been itching at me for a while, and I, the kind of thing where I bring it up a lot. And I remember a particular conversation I had with my wife where she basically said, dude, you keep on talking about this idea. You've been talking about it for, at this point, seven years. Um, <laughs> you know, either do something about it or, or shut up. You know, go. <laughs> and so... Um, and, and honestly, it was as simple as that. I remember, you know, thinking like, how, how in the world am I going to get this thing off the ground? <laughs> and I had a few friends who had, had gone through a program called Y Combinator out here on the left coast. Probably a lot of flyover lab uh, folks to be attuned to. But it's, it's a, it's a um, startup incubator that's kind of famous for starting companies like Airbnb and Dropbox and Reddit, which is yeah. one of my personal favorites, right? Um, and I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. So I put together an application. Um, at the time, of me and a co-founder, who I, you know, kind of convinced to, to join on board, and we applied to YC. And uh, like much to my surprise, you know, it's funny. I think I think I probably worked harder on that application for than having any application possible to undergraduate. Uh, went through twenty different iterations. You know, at the at the time, I think it's different now. They um, they 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 made it so you have a char- very strict character limits on the answers. They'd be very succinct. Which is hard for a lawyer. Uh, we like to talk. Um, so, so finally, we printed the application, got got the interview request, um, went in, and we had just so over prepared for the interview that we were just on top of everything. We, we approached it like we were approaching some sort of big lawsuit or something like that. And we got into YC, and we were, we were super stoked about that. Um, and and still, honestly, honored to be part oh, of that yeah. that yeah. group of people. Um, and. The early days, what it really looked like was me coding um, as furiously as I possibly could, sleeplessly, you know, for months. Because the way that, that, as you might imagine, Y Combinator works is you come in with an idea in June, and you're supposed to have a finished product with users and with evidence you can present to, you know, early investors in, like, months. And that is hard, you know. <laughs> that is very hard, um, especially what I was trying to build. I, I think I was a, a little bit naive. You know, so to speak, right? I I believed um, that I could build a working prototype that essentially replicated all of LexisNexis and had the ability for for community members to annotate all in the course of like Easy. five weeks. Yeah, by yourself or <laughs> yeah. You know. but, yeah, I, I was I was a technical founder at the time. I was the one coding the whole thing. Um, <laughs> and to make matters worse, actually, I so I grew up in the old school web days where PHP was like what everybody was using. And on the very first day of Y Combinator, Paul Graham said to me, PHP is not an option if you want to hire talented coders. You should either do Python or, or Ruby on Rails. And so I taught myself Python. I programmed the whole thing in a totally new language. Um, wow. And it was hard. <laughs> um, but fun. I mean, I never had much fun. I love building things. That's one of the things I miss in the law firm. You know, even though I had great colleagues and great, great work, is I miss building things. Um, and so it was fun. 
And we got something up by, you know, it started in June. By August, we had a working prototype up. It was slow and bad and buggy. But, you know, one of the things we realized pretty early on is we were making, a, at the time, a huge swath of the law free for the first time ever. And already, kind of overnight, we had thousands of users. How do you get the free? Yeah, how do you make the law free that no one else did it before? Um, so, so yeah, great, great question. The the truth is that um, a lot of the, the old models, like Westlaw and LexisNexis, their approach was put the law and our value added content behind the paywall, right? And so, as a consequence, you it's both behind a paywall, right? They're charging for access just to the law, just to search the law. Um, and, and they have to do that, by the way, to support their enormous amount of overhead, right? There's literally a 17,000-person organization. But as it is right now, we're a 17-person organization. Our cost structure is totally different because we're not hiring all these, all these editors, right? And so we're able to take something that's very valuable and make it free. And I would say this is basically the same thing that, you know, I, I was running from a playbook that's pretty well trod at this point. Um, Yelp, for example, what came before it were these restaurant guides you have to buy. And Yelp said, we're going to make the the information free and monetized in other ways, you know, um, bending with travel guides and, tri- and trip advisor or, uh, you know, map information, the core map data and, and traffic information ways. Um, you know, all, all these crowdsourcing companies have taken, taken earlier examples and said, we can make the big value free and then monetize off of something different, right? So that, that, that was exactly our approach. But one of the side benefits we didn't even anticipate at the very beginning was how much lawyers were using Google to research them to begin with. You know, we later found out that actually 60% of lawyers started with a Google query to find the case or huh. statute they're looking for, or at least it's any information, in large part because they're looking for kind of the intelligent analyses and advice that law firms and lawyers, even before case, are already publishing on their own blogs and kind of scattered all over the web. And, you know, so the ADA did that research, and 60% of people started on Google. We had no idea at the time, actually. So overnight, because Google indexed our free content that was very valuable, right, these cases and statutes and regulations and annotations, um, people just started showing up wow. and using the platform kind of overnight. And that and that was awesome. It was, it was, you know, it's funny because at the time we may have had 5,000 users a month or something like that, and now we have 500,000. So at the time it felt amazing. We've <laughs> grown yeah. considerably uh, over the last two and a half years or so. Um, but uh, but that that's how we got a really early start. Is, is that how you got most of your uh, traffic and users was through uh, word of mouth, probably, but also through Google? Yeah, both. And, okay. and the more we got people initially using it through Google, yeah. one of the you know number one referrals we see is people emailing other people, hey, hmm. check out Facebook. And you see a lot of people coming from domains like Outlook and Gmail and or internal um, internal law firm domains. That, that's that's absolutely like the, the initial way we grew. Interesting. And so then, so let's see, start 2013, you raised money in October 2013? Yeah, that's right. That was our initial... Um, After the, uh, not counting YC, but yeah. 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 Um, um, and that was, it was an interesting round because um, at the time I, I had pitched Demo Day and anybody who's gotten that experience knows that your life for the next two weeks is going to be crazy. Either crazy because things aren't going that well and you're really trying to put strategy to the money. Or we were lucky to be in, in another case where people, a lot of lawyers who went to demo day actually didn't even realize what happened, you know. Even the lawyers who were pretty prominent investors. At the time, David Lee, um, an investor who was with SV Angel, um, and now is doing his own thing, you know, he was a lawyer and totally got what we were doing. He, he approached us as investors, you know, and it was just, 
hundreds and hundreds of, of phone calls and meetings. Not all of them yeses, obviously. What we're doing is niche and different and a little bit risky because we're taking this free approach first before we make money, right? Um, but that was uh, that was the first we took and it worked out pretty well. Yeah, I guess so. And have you... So do, do you have a business model or do you have any revenue? Uh, we currently are not making revenue. Okay. We've, we've spent the first few years focused entirely on growing the community of contributors um, to make the resource very valuable and and growing the the, the research tool to something that, that lawyers can use in defense, which is itself, you know, our, our philosophy then and still is that you can only really do one thing well at the company, you know, maybe. <laughs> so companies don't need that. And if we were going to build a community-based platform uh, and, and simultaneously try to monetize on it, very, very few companies have actually pulled that off. And you see actually companies as big as like Facebook or Yelp or even Google um, all started with the product first and, and then went after revenues later. There's one notable example, uh, which is GitHub, which amazingly made $1,000 I think, in the first day of operation. Um, but they're the exception to the rule, I would say. Um, and so we, we were very conscious about that and about growing our community of contributors and users first. Um, Although that said, we've now reached a point, you know, with hundreds of thousands of contributions and contributors and uh, hundreds of thousands of people using the site every month. And we're at a place, we believe, where that's going to be the next big question for us, really, is about which business path we pursue. Um, that's something we're actively thinking about. No, that makes sense. And um, <laughs> Can you, uh, can you share any, or are you still thinking about potential paths? I mean, it seems like there's so many different paths. I mean, when you, when you have that type of community, there's just a lot of things you can do. I mean, you don't want to upset anyone or, like, you know, push things too much. But right. man, there's just so much value-add stuff you could probably layer on top, um, it seems like. But, yeah. It, yes. No, that's absolutely right. The truth is that we are, we are openly considering internally a number of different ideas. One of these will probably be next as a strategy decision is – is focused actually on building out um, MVPs, the minimally viable product for each uh, of the different ideas and, and market them separately and see how well they convert um, and choose to focus deeply on one of them um, after after kind of testing out many of them simultaneously. It's kind of a, a risky move that we were talking about internally because there's so many ideas that we're excited about. We want to we'll find a way to pick a winner, you know? Yeah. Um, so... Some of those ideas include, you know, we have very advanced research functionality on the site, a lot of data science, uh, uh, a lot of data science tools that are derivative of the legal database that we have and the contributions we're getting from users. Things that can help you do, do very important legal research tasks that are essential to your job, like what is the most important case we need to, need to be reading next? What part of that case is the most important question? So I focus on, you know. If I'm very interested in a particular sentence or phrase in the case, can I see what other lawyers have said about it? Right? All those things are the very hard to do in current systems. And things we've been able to get access to. Because we can say, of the hundreds of firms that talk about this case, they've all talked about this one sentence. That's valuable, right? Um, very, very valuable for lawyers. Or of the hundreds of cases that came out yesterday, this is the one that that everybody's talking about. That's oh, also very viable. It helps to keep you in the net, right? So we have like premium research services. Another kind of variant of that is a lot of firms internally very much struggle to find information that they themselves are producing. Um, so, you know, if you're working on an important patent law case, you will know who to reach out to um, about the issues that you've, you've worked on or they've worked on to, to help get you up to speed 
about this like very particular niche patent issue, for example. And so um, what we can help firms do is use our technology that currently helps uh, public information annotate the law, these public, you know, publications that people have added to the site, um, and instead turn that internal into a firm so that people who are behind the firm's firewall and part of that firm's local private network can see what, you know, you know, pull the case instead of just seeing what, you know, the other firm down the street said, see what the guy down the hall said, the guy in the Singapore office that, that's part of your firm, you know, what members have they written, what, what parts have they, they researched, who's an expert on this, and who knows the most. Um, is another kind of an enterprise version of these advanced relationships, right? And we have actually, truth be told, you know, nearly half a dozen of these kind of ideas and what to pick, oh, yeah. which one we want to want to pursue first, uh, but we're excited about a lot of them. Interesting. And, and yeah, those are some good ideas. And, and how much money have you raised in total? So in total, it's about $8.8 million. 8 point, wow, okay. That's a, that's, a, that's a decent amount, that's for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you kind of mentioned it before, but you know, I, I was curious about text analytics or uh, more around machine or more around machine learning. Do you have other ideas um, where you, you think that could be quite helpful? It seems like I mean, you have so much yeah. content, like it's just yeah, it's, it's almost too much. And actually, <laughs> yeah. I think that's where one of the places where where machine learning and data science comes into play, helping draw signal out of the noise. Right. Um, the lawyer's job when they're researching is essentially about finding a needle in a haystack and then deeply, deeply understanding it. And data science and machine learning helps with both those tasks, right? In terms of finding the needle in the haystack, there are so much we can do to help improve our search and ranking algorithms, help make them more personalized to the person doing the search, mm-hmm. right? To help um, coming and personalized to the, to the particular matter that you're currently working on and suggesting the cases to read based on the previous search history, for example. That, that helps you find that needle in the haystack, right? Um, if the, and you can say, based on, you know, uh, a really interesting product that thinking about is, you know, based on everything that your opponents have cited in a brief um, before the judge, here are all the things that, that you need to be researching next, right? Um, and those are the kinds of learning and suggestion algorithms where data science, tech analytics, and machine learning end up being really important. And then on the really deeply understanding a case, pinpointing where it is in that opinion you should be reading first, uh, what are the most important sentences, what are the summary of this case um, before you dive into it, and you can prepare it without hiring 10,000 editors, right? Those are the kinds of things also where those kinds of technologies have already actually made a really big impact. Today, on, you know, uh, we were, we're tracking very carefully about 1.6 million cases, which are we believe to be the most important cases in our database. We think that because they've, they've actually been cited by other cases. Like a lot of cases would be not cited ever. But in these cases, have actually been cited at least four or five cases, right? Um, and of those really important cases, all the cases you've ever heard about and, and any more, um, we already have summaries, key sentences, uh, a heat map that, that defines what the most important part of the opinion is, all that stuff that, that helps an attorney understand the case once they've arrived there through the through kind of advanced search is really important to a lawyer and really benefited by by having, you know, we were lucky to have people here who worked at places like IBM and Google and Amazon, people who really thought about these kinds of issues um, that, that we... I mean... Oh, Jake, you there? Yes. Okay. Excuse me? Yeah, I think you just got cut off. <laughs> that happened. Um Okay. Yeah. And so we're almost out of time here. And 
yes, and thanks for the the machine learning um, overview. That's I mean, it's really yeah, what you guys have uh, what you guys have there is in, impressive. It feels like somebody should come along and uh, probably buy you. Jake, you still there? Yes. Okay. I don't know what that was, but um, and uh, it feels like somebody should come along and buy it. Like like you mentioned, Bloomberg. Somebody who wants to get into the, the legal industry, man, this would be a, a big step. As you know, you know better than me. But <laughs> um, we'll we'll see what happens right over the over the next uh, few years. Um, yeah, totally. And to be honest, uh, I'm not doing this for that reason. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I want this to be the last talk I ever have, and so they can try. <laughs> um, I like it. I like it. All right. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. So th- three. Uh, quick questions well maybe they're quick but uh so have a attorney started using the platform or engaged with each other or in some ways that you didn't quite imagine they would um or have asked um, yeah I, I would say i mean you know, the, the first big surprise was how often they come to us came to us originally from google that was a big shock yeah 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 uh, and the second thing that shouldn't have been a surprise but ended up being you know ended up being a surprise and in retrospect kind of clear a lot of the lawyers who use us are um, are actually, you know, we thought we were making a lower cost tool that would help, especially people at small and solo firms um, who could not pay for less law and Lexus Nexus, which is not economically viable. And we see a lot of people who use us from those places too. But actually, the majority of our users are young associates at big firms which are looking for better technology. And they, they have the resources to pay, hmm. you know, the firm for less law and Lexus. But, Yet still, these, these associates and partners are, are just so fed up, I think, you know, um, and when we do user interviews, we find this kind of consistent message of, like, finally something that has been created in the 20th century, you know, yeah. <laughs> the 21st century, sorry, yes. um, uh, that that really works well and as expected and um, and provides awesome information uh, produced in a way that, um, you know, is, 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 you know, kind of they're used to, they're used to things like Yelp and TripAdvisor and, and more the technically advanced or core on Stack Exchange. And, and so we're seeing a much bigger pickup from that group than we ever thought it was in the beginning of it. And, uh, and two more questions, and they're both a little more on the personal side of things. It's, uh, so through this, have you had any good mentors um, kind of help you guide, whether it's from the legal side, the tech side, the, the business side? And yeah, and to name just a few, I mean, I, I will say, right off the bat, um, I would not be where I am today without the advice of, of many, many people. And especially for, you see this a lot, generally speaking, if you're a, um, a startup that is founded by a domain expert, not a serial entrepreneur, um, finding information about how to start a business is just so important. So a lot of credit goes to the early YC, um, the, the YC partners were there from early to give me advice uh, from day one. Uh, and, you know, I especially was grateful because I, I got to have a few conversations with Paul Graham uh, when, back when he was running YC still. And, you know, he just, he would in an instant know exactly what we'd have to do under, under any pressing or difficult situation. And it's always really wow. difficult. Wow. Um, in the early days, I'm very lucky to have his advice to me. You didn't, didn't always take it to your chagrin. Um, it was just having those conversations is super important. Um, also very lucky. I mean, I had a friend from childhood actually who started a company called Parse, um, in Y Combinator. And, uh, his name is Elliot Sukar. He ended up, you know, becoming CEO of Parse and, and sold that to Facebook. 
Um, and having his advice at every step along the way, um, you know, how do you get into YC? Okay, now that you're in, what do you do with YC? Now that you're out of YC, now do you raise money? How do you build a company, the culture, you know, all those things. He, he's been there, done that. Um, uh, you know, that was just so, so important. Um, and um, later on in my business, I've, I've hooked up with mentors and advisors. My board member, John Buttrick, who's been, he works from Municipal Ventures, um, uh, had worked at a law firm for 20 plus years, but also just, we've seen businesses grow in the Municipal Ventures kind of style. Has been, you know, his instinct about what we should do next, who we should be hiring, the big points of strategy, how to deal with uh, certain situations, connecting with people who help has been incalculably helpful. Uh, and he actually hooked me up even before Unions Car Ventures invested. He connected me with a guy named Tom Grosser, um, who is the ex CEO of Thompson Reuters and Reuters. And notably, Thompson Reuters owns Westlaw. Yeah. So, so Tom is an ex lawyer from Yale Law School who ran the, the business operation that owned Westlaw. And having his perspective on the industry, on, um, you know, our competitors, but also on, you know, how to, how to make business decisions at the highest level. And all of these, all these people, just name a few, have been, and I'm sure I'm leaving out literally dozens of people who helped me a lot along the way, um, have, you know, have had an incalculable influence on the That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, that, that's what most uh, entrepreneurs say, right? It takes a it takes a village to raise a, a company. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I really believe that. Um, so, last question is, uh, you know, can you think of any for the audience any good lessons you learned, or mistakes made, or something you would do differently? You know, any one or two that have st- stood out that uh, maybe we wouldn't have to repeat. <laughs> oh, there are so many. It is. Hard to count, um, but a, a few um, just off the top of the top. Always hire people um, for a position where you're feeling the need, not just because they're awesome people. Um, because if you don't do that, they may end up being a bad fit themselves, and they won't. They'll be happy because they aren't excelling in their current role, and you won't be happy with them because you think, hey, well, this person is really awesome. Why are they, you know, why aren't they happy with where they are? Right. So I think hire for need, not not for raw talent. And it should be early, early days. I think later when you're a bigger company. You can afford to have some business with really smart people, you know. Um, another piece of advice is uh, I think that a lot of founders who start companies like mine in industry, like legal or, you know, medicine or whatever, um, tend to think small. Um, they think, okay, we're going to solve this small problem for a small subset of our industry. And I think it's important, uh, and I think investors in particular say, well, I couldn't invest in a company that has the potential to reach them. You know, all 300 million Americans. Um, or a company that only reaches a million lawyers, why would I pick the one that, that, that's thinking so small? And I'd encourage founders, especially for, for enterprise or um, vertical-specific startups, to think very carefully about who they're targeting and what the big vision is. Where can they be in 5 or 10 or 15 years? As opposed to, you know, what's the, the relatively minor problem they're solving today? I mean, Airbnb is a great example of this outside this, this kind of field. They're literally providing airbed mattresses or conferences when they started, you know, and they leave. And, um, and I think, uh, I think founders would do well to think like we're not a few steps ahead of where they can be going, not just where they are today. Great thing. That's uh, some uh, great advice. Thank you. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll take that to heart. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I guess that's it. 
I can keep talking for a while, but we should probably uh, cut it off here. Uh, but it's been really interesting to hear more about you and case text and what you've created is uh, pretty special for the, the legal industry. So we appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with us and t- tell us more about it. Thanks, David. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> nice. All right. And that, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to uh, Jake and myself. We appreciate it. And we'll see you next time on uh, Flyover Labs. Bye, everyone.